Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. You know, over the last number of weeks, we've been looking at what it means to be saved. Uh, we've it's language that we've kind of maybe grown up hearing. It's probably language that we've thrown around. I remember uh, multiple times my friends in my high school years and probably even recently, uh, my friends would tell me when I did something stupid, just get saved, Nate. Like, <laughs> stop. Are you going to get saved? Um, and, you know, outside of Christian lingo, it's kind of like weird language, right? We don't just kind of throw it around uh, casually in everyday conversation. Um, and it, it has like this unique uh, connection with Christianity in uh, being saved. It's something that we talk about. And it's something that Jesus talked about. But we really wanted to bring clearer definition to exactly what is it that we're saved from, right? What is it that we're saved by? And for what purpose are we saved? And so we talked about being saved from, being saved by, and being saved for. And we looked over the last number of weeks, we looked at Romans chapter 5 and uh, at various other places in Scripture. And we came up with this conclusion, this overarching conclusion that we are saved and that we are saved by God, right? For God and from God. And the way that we kind of phrased it last week was that God's love saves us from God's wrath for God's joy. But that doesn't negate the subsequent uh, truth that we are delivered, the subsequent truth that we are delivered from the power of sin, of the devil, of hell. Um, these things that we kind of talked about uh, over the last number of weeks, that it's not just... Uh, we, we, I asked this question to a number of different people and had a bunch of different answers when I asked, what are we saved from? And people said, well, I'm saved from myself. I'm saved from my sin. I'm saved from devil. I'm saved from hell. And, and those were all true in part. Um, and it's something that Jesus does save us from. And so uh, if you guys know me, um, I'll, I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into my sermon writing process here. Um, I like to come up with a general concept. I feel like what the Lord's speaking to me, and then I start to compile notes, and I study, and I kind of present it in this big, long list of trying to exhaust the subject, and then I quickly realize there is way too much content here to try to present coherently on a Sunday morning, and I like to take my Sunday mornings just to spend time with the Lord and really refresh what I'm going to share for the day to make sure that it still makes sense. Because it can make sense in this long document, um, but does it still make sense if I was just going to kind of casually have a conversation with somebody? And uh, more often than not, I've realized, at least in the last number of years, that uh, my sermons continue to grow on a Sunday morning. And as much as I would love to try to get through one particular topic very quickly on a Sunday morning, I realize that if I'm going to do justice to the Word of God, it tends to drag on and on and on and on. And so what was initially just supposed to be a one-part sermon on being saved turned into a three-part series on what we're saved from, what we're saved by, and what we're saved for. And then that turned into another three-part subsequent uh, series, like uh, underneath point A, into uh, talking about what we're saved from. And we talked about God's wrath a number of weeks ago, which is like, ooh, that's fun, that's pretty, that's happy. Um, it's intense, right? But I wanted to talk about these concepts, these things that God also saves and delivers us from in the context of sin, which is what we talked about last week. We talked about how God came to save his people from their sins, right? And we talked about uh, being delivered from the power of sin. Uh, we're going to talk today about the devil. Woo, popular guy, right? <laughs> Not really, uh, but we're going to talk about him because it's important and uh, we're also going to talk about God's wrath and hell and punishment. And there's a lot of questions that circulate around these topics. And they're not really the popular thing to 
kind of really present to people in the context of a Sunday morning. It's not really packing out buildings uh, because it really doesn't make you feel that good to talk about something that is bad, right? But it's important that we have a biblical viewpoint of all of these things and it all connects and correlates back to salvation. And so we jumped into last week about the power of sin and we explored the fact that Jesus didn't just die to forgive us of our sins. That's a common misconception that Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, but he actually died to break the power of sin in our life as well. So it's not just that we're forgiven, but it's also that we're empowered to live victorious over sin, that we're able to break free from its enslavement over our lives. And so we were in Romans chapter 6. We actually read the whole chunk of Romans chapter 6 last week. I want to just start with Romans 6, verse 6 here. Uh, six, Romans 6, 6 here. We know that our own sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives, that we are no longer slaves to sin. If there was kind of one verse that really summed up what we were talking about last week was that what Jesus did for us, his salvation not only forgave us, but actually empowered us to break free from the grip of sin in our life. And we continued on in 1 John chapter 3, which I'm reviewing here because it introduces the character that we're going to talk today about today being the devil. So 1 John uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, it says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin, right? We talked about this last week. We celebrated this fact. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either known, has either seen him or known him. And we talked about how this is like a continual, habitual lifestyle of sin that we want Jesus to save us from. In verse 7, it says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. Woo, that's good. We're going to talk about that. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Because they have been born of God. And I really wanted to read this passage again. I really wanted to reiterate uh, one particular thing because I don't want there to be confusion for people because we understand that, you know, most of you, if you're anything like me, probably sinned on your way to church this morning. And that's sad because I only had to walk like five or six steps, um, you know. Um, I, I'm, that's kind of maybe an exaggeration here, but how many of you guys still sin? How many of you guys still mess up? How many of you guys have cut people off or just got frustrated, lied to somebody, and you knew that it was wrong and you did it, but you're like, I don't feel like I lost my salvation because of that, right? <laughs> Um, and I want to be clear here, I believe what John is speaking of is a habitual lifestyle of continued practice in sin. Um, because just a few verses earlier in, in, in 1 John here, he says that um, if anyone says that he's without sin, he deceives himself. And so the, the Greek and the language here really talks about this continual lifestyle of sin. Anyway, regardless, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that if we profess faith in Jesus, our lifestyles also must profess that faith by the way that we live. Um, but really, this was all kind of an introduction to verse 8, where we get introduced to this dude, the devil. Anybody remember this song? There was like a, I think it was called the W's. It was a band, and they were a ska band. Most of you probably don't know ska music, but it's like band kids wanting to be cool and play punk rock. Uh, with <laughs> it's okay, I was in orchestra, so I can make fun of us. Um, long story short, uh, it's punk rock with brass instruments, and there was this song, and it's like, you are the devil and the devil is bad. You are, nobody knows that song? 
Well, that's my message this morning. Wow, I really thought that would connect with more people. I should have had it queued up and uh, just ready to play, and you guys would have been like, oh, no. okay, never mind. Uh, your pastor's weird. It's okay. Really, nobody knows that song? Okay, thank you. Woo. My wife raised her hand. I'm happy that the three people in the back know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the devil is bad, right? You want point one of my 17-point sermon this morning? The devil is bad. <laughs> I saw somebody just write that down, and that makes me really happy. But in verse 8, it says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. This is, there's so much in this just one particular passage but there is, if there's one thing I, I need us to understand this morning is, the rea- is this reality. The majority of people in our culture today, the majority of the people that I talk to even about this concept, do not believe that the devil is real, let alone that he's bad. Less than 30%, and these were statistics that I pulled this morning. They're actually from research that was pulled in 2008, in 2009. I couldn't find anything more recent than that, so I can only assume that the statistics have uh, gotten worse than this. But less than one in three Americans actually believe in the devil. That's not so shocking to me. Um, you know, that doesn't, like, that doesn't, like, just like blow my mind that so few people believe in the devil. But what I was shocked was of born-again believers. These are, self-identified, uh, uh, these are self-identified Christians that proclaim faith and uh, a born-again experience in Jesus Christ that are active in church. All of these things that meet certain criteria to fall in this category, over 50%, most, I'm using the word here, most of them do not believe that the devil exists. Rather, uh, rather than believing that he exists, they have this idea that um, he's more of a, just a symbolic personification of evil. He's some kind of figment of like a literary device, but he does not actually uh, exist as a being, as a created being, that is the enemy of the saints. Um, and this was, this was research done by Barna and Gallup. They both kind of uh, correlated here. And shockingly, uh, there, was a, there was a strange correlation here of those that did not believe that the devil existed as a, as a real literal being. Um, most of those same people that were polled, uh, it was a large sample of people also did not believe that the Holy Spirit existed as a person. And that was, uh, that, was, uh, that was shattering for me, and we're going to talk about that on another day. But um, just really, like, not happy statistics for me to read, to look at this morning. And you might be here saying, well, you know what? I don't really know what I think about the devil. I really don't know what I think about Lucifer. And really, what is this? What is it? Why is it a big deal if it's, you know, what we think about the devil, right? Isn't it all about what we think about Jesus? And the reality of it is, friends, I believe that there is a spiritual battle taking place for souls. I believe that we have someone named the enemy and the accuser of the brethren and the devil himself. We're going to talk about these things uh, that really much does not want to see God's people succeed. And that there is a real battle that we are called to be engaged in, but I can't help but think that we are failing on that front uh, if we don't believe the enemy actually exists. Uh, To put it into perspective here, let's say there was an assassin that was out to kill you, right? And he was really good at his job, right? And, you know, somebody paid him a a large sum of money, and he knew where you lived, he knew where you worked, and he was tracking you down, and, you know, think like Jason Bourne or one of these, like, spy movies or something like that. He was coming after you. Uh, You know, I'm going to use Joey for an example because I love this guy, and I know he won't get mad at me. But, Joey, let's say I told you right now, there is somebody trying to kill you. 
You need to watch out because they know where you live. They know what's going on. They've got your number, list of greatest fears, and they are coming after you to kill you. But you said, I don't really believe that, Nate. You know, and you just went about your everyday life and there really was somebody trying to kill you. Uh, They would kill you because you didn't know that they were there, right? (laughs) I know that sounds overly simplistic, but the reality of it is, friends, we cannot effectively engage an enemy if we do not believe he actually exists or we treat him like he's not there. And I think that this comes from this kind of dichotomy of where we don't want to give the devil too much credit, right? We all have those people that blame the devil for everything, like they're late for work or they can't get out of bed and come to church or something like that, and it's all the devil's fault, right? Reality of it is sometimes it's just you're dumb (laughs) and you're lazy, right? Can we be real here? It's not demons in the internet all the time. Sometimes, you know, Pagosa just has bad internet. We have all of these things that just... We want to, like, we're really quick to maybe give the devil too much credit, but in doing so, we've neglected the fact that he is a great enemy of the bride of Christ. He is a great enemy of the people of God, and he does not want to see the church succeed because he knows that he's defeated, he knows that he has lost, and he's doing anything and everything in his power to hurt God by hurting us. Because he knows there's nothing that he can do that's possibly going to hurt God. Does that make sense? We could talk about a theology of the devil and really break it down. But a lot of people, and you might be here in this room this morning, thinking that the devil is not that big of a deal, and he's not real, or it's really not important to the way that you live your life or your faith. Um, uh, Charles Baudelaire, I don't know how to speak French, So I'm butchering this guy's name, and I'm really sorry. Uh, But he was quoted in a movie, not, I guess it was quite a a ways back. But uh, this is a quote from the 18th century. Can we throw it up on the screen? I think I had Adam. But it it says here that the devil's cleverest while is to make men believe that he does not exist. And that's, uh, that's one of his greatest tricks. I, I think uh, in the movie it was kind of recast and rephrased that the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And it's pretty smart. It's a, it's a pretty good tactic on his part uh, because if uh, we don't believe that he exists, then we're not looking out for his schemes and his plans and his devices that he would try to trip us up with. I like John Wilkinson. He was a... He was a Quaker in the 1800s, and he said this, One of the artifices of Satan is to introduce men to believe that he does not exist. Another, perhaps equally fatal, is to make them fancy that he is obliged to stand quietly by and not to meddle with them if they get into true silence. This idea that uh, either Satan doesn't exist or if he does exist, he doesn't interfere, he doesn't meddle, he doesn't have any kind of, uh, he doesn't kind of have any kind of interference with what's actually taking place. And I want to say, friends, this is a misconception, and it's a dangerous one, and I believe it's a tactic of the deceiver. Crazy thing about deception, right? It's deceiving, right? And uh, Satan, I hate to break it to you, he's a pretty good deceiver. Uh, You might think you're like good at those games where you have to lie and deceive your friends. I like balderdash where you have to make up like uh, definitions for fake words and whatnot. And um, I feel like I'm fairly uh, good at it, unfortunately. Um, The devil is better. (laughs) The devil is a good liar and he's convincing when he does so. And I think it would be important for us to I think it's important for us to stay alert, to be vigilant, and not to underestimate our enemy here. And so I've got some bummer news for you. And then I have some really good news, but that bummer news is that there is a real devil. There is a real enemy of the church. There is a real enemy of the saints. There is a real adversary, a literal Satan, as we would call him. He's an enemy of God and of his people, and he has a plan for your life. 
You know, let's put that on a Hobby Lobby plaque and sell it, right? You guys have all been there to Hobby Lobby and you've seen like, uh, there's like some kind of like misquoted, like out of context Jeremiah 29.11 on like a fancy frilly font and it's put up on a plaque. I have one of these in my house, so I'm not judging you if you do, but it's for I know the plans I have for you to, for you to prosper, right? They were in Babylonian captivity. Everybody leaves that part out. It doesn't make a fun plaque. But, but the reality is we've all probably heard that Jesus has a plan for your life, right? God has a plan for your life. And it's a good plan. It's a plan for you to prosper. It's a plan for you to flourish. And it's great, right? That's true. I'm not trying to undermine this. But equally, I believe that the enemy has a plan for your life doesn't preach as nice. It's not as fun. We don't really want to talk about it. But if we know about it, then we can do something against it. Jesus himself would highlight this in John chapter 10. John 10, 10, he calls the enemy the thief here. He says, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have life more abundantly, the thief, the enemy, the devil. <laughs> he wants to still steal, <laughs> kill, and destroy every good gift from God in your life. I believe he wants to steal away your family. He'll steal away your time. He'll steal away your attention. He wants to destroy the good gifts of God in your life. You know, he might not even be able to get you to deny Christ or, or, or trip you up, but man, he'll come after your family. He'll come after your finances. He'll come after your faith. I believe that we have a real enemy that really meddles and really wants to destroy what God's doing in your life. And you'd say, well, he's not powerful enough. He doesn't have that. Then why would Jesus continually warn us to, be, uh, to watch out for him? <laughs> why, why, would he, why would he have this language? And I... I I just, I want you to know that the devil wants to rob you of the joy that's promised from the Lord. He wants to destroy your faith in your family. He wants, uh, he wants you to throw it all away. He promises this worry-free kind of lackadaisical life of pleasure and doing what you want. But guess what? He cannot deliver on its fulfillment. There is no lasting satisfaction in his plan for your life. It ultimately ends in death and destruction. He wants to present to you, hey, do what you want, the way that you want it, how you want it, however you feel. Isn't that the mantra of our culture right now? Do what you want, how you want it. If it makes you feel good, do it. Right? No, don't do it, Simi. <laughs> No, that's my son in the back row. <laughs> but for real, right? That's follow your heart. If it says, if it says do it, do it. If it says, oh, you feel like this is right, right? Isn't that? I don't feel like I'm supposed to be married to my wife anymore. Do not take a sound bite like this and put it on the internet. <laughs> this is in the context of a sermon. But right? How many, how many times have we heard that? I don't feel like I'm, I just don't love you the way that I used to. It's time for us to see different people, right? Or I don't even feel like, I, I don't feel like God made me a man. I feel like I'm supposed to be a woman. Thanks, Jack. You were waiting to get me back on that one. <laughs> but we, it's all about how we feel and what feels good and what's pleasurable for a season, Right? Drink this, smoke that, inject this, take these pills because it feels good. There's no repercussions. It's not going to hurt anybody but yourself. And how quickly does the promise of a little pleasure turn into enslavement and entrapment? And that's the trickery. That's the deceptiveness of sin. It always sounds good in the moment. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, you know what I'd really like to do? I'd like to be addicted to meth. Right? That isn't, that isn't how it happens, right? Nobody wakes up one morning and just says, you know what? I have a great family. Man, my boys are awesome. I have a beautiful wife. Let me just throw that all away. It doesn't start that way because the enemy's trickery is, he's good at it, right? He's deceptive. And it starts with, hey, man, just watch a little pornography here. It's not going to hurt anybody. Right? And then it, then it turns to, oh, well, just meet this girl that you met on the internet. It's not a big deal, Right? 
Or it starts with, hey, here's a little pot here, oh, here's a, here's a little this here. And it's a slippery slope that opens up the door to where once you thought it was manageable, but then it has you fully entangled, fully enslaved, and it leads to death. That's what, that's what Scripture tells us, that sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. That's his plan for you. That's his desire for you. He doesn't want you to have fun. You see these shirts all the time. You got ACD singing about it. You know, like, let's go party in hell. It's not a party. It's not going to be fun. Oh, man. Uh, I should stick to my notes. Would you believe that the Bible talks a lot about the devil? <laughs> that, that Jesus has a lot to say about Satan? And so uh, I'm going to do my best to be very concise this morning, but I want us to understand that there's a real enemy that really doesn't want to see you succeed, really hates your guts. And he may seem like a friend sometimes, but he's pretty deceptive. We read, uh, I want to be clear that Satan, the devil, Lucifer, he goes by many different names in scripture. In fact, uh, the devil, which is kind of probably the arguably the most widely used term that we use for this guy. Um, it means slanderer. That's literally what devil means. And it comes from the fact that he's the accuser of the brethren. That's another title that's given to him. It means that he would like to speak ill against you and against God. We find that in Revelation chapter 12, but he's mentioned throughout the scriptures as Satan more than 52 times. Other titles that he goes by are the son of the morning, the ruler of this world, the god of this age, lowercase g, the thief, the deceiver, the tempter, the father of lies, our adversary, or the great enemy. He's referenced to as the dragon and as the serpent. If the devil were some kind of abstract construct just used to kind of symbolically represent evil in the world, it's very strange that scripture would go to such great lengths and provide such a great detail of him uh, as a, an actual being. I, I want to be very clear about this. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 refers to the devil as the god of this age, right? Who blinds the minds of unbelievers. And it is from this enemy that we are saved. Remember, we're talking about what we're saved from, and we're being saved from the power of the devil. This is how Paul would describe and define his commission from Jesus and his encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus. In Acts 26, 17, and 18, he talks about his commission from the Lord. This is, these are the words of Jesus here, talking about how he's going to use Paul in his ministry. He says that, I will deliver you, from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you. He's talking about Paul's commission here. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance amongst those who are being sanctified by faith in me. When we're saved, when we receive this forgiveness of sins, this inheritance among those who are being sanctified by Jesus, we're delivered, we're saved from the power of Satan. Right? The power of the devil here. And we're, we're transplanted, we're switching teams, right? <laughs> we're taking off our jersey and we're getting on the right side here of being transferred over from the power of Satan to God. But I want to be very clear, just because we're saved from him, just because we're delivered from his power, from his rule, and from his reign, just because the blinders have been lifted and we see clearly and we recognize him, does not mean we're free to live away from his influence of his attacks and his attempts to destroy our lives. And I think this is where a big misconception comes from is that because we've said yes to Jesus, the devil just leaves us alone. How many of you guys that have been following Jesus for a, a number of years, a, a particular length of time, uh, know that just because you say yes to Jesus does not mean that the enemy leaves you alone, doesn't mean the devil stops getting in your business, it actually probably means he starts stirring things up a little bit more. Because he was completely content with you ruining your own life living your own way, and he didn't have to do anything to disrupt God's plan for your life because 
you were doing a pretty good job of it. But when we say yes to Jesus, when we say yes to him, I believe it puts a target on our back. And it really, it really brands us as his enemy. And he does not like it, friends. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9 tell us this. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. This does not sound like just kind of like some symbolic thing here. We're, we're being told to watch out against our great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering that you are. Is this passage of scripture is pretty profound, and I want to talk about just three things here. And they're very, they're very brief, and I didn't make them their own sermon. Can I get a gold star for that? Is anybody excited for that? They're like, woo, we might actually get out of talking about this someday. <laughs> but the first thing that we're instructed to do is to stay alert, to be sober, to watch out, to pay attention. This isn't the kind of language that would warn us to, about some kind of abstract concept. This is talking about a real threat here, to pay attention. And that's why the, the great travesty of the enemy, or the great travesty of the church, is the enemy has deceived so many people that he's not real, that he's not a big deal, that we shouldn't pay attention to him. That's in direct contrast of what we read here in Scripture, that we're to be alert we're to be aware, we're to be of a sober mind, to watch out for our enemy, the devil, because he's vicious. Notice here, it doesn't say just kind of don't watch out for that rinky-dink old devil, right? Like that, you know, that just doesn't have anything that he can do to you. He talks about it as our great enemy. This isn't talking about just, uh, just kind of like a, not a big deal. Scripture here is very clear that he's a formidable foe. For the people of God. Okay, you're all like, uh, what are we talking about here? I want to tell you, don't, under mess, uh, don't underestimate your enemy. I think that's a dangerous thing to do. I'm not talking about giving them all the credit. And I'm, trust me, this was, a, this was a conflicting thing for me to kind of uh, present this morning. Because I don't want to make a bigger deal about Satan than he deserves. Or bigger deal about the devil than he deserves. Because in comparison to Jesus, it's insignificant. In comparison to what he's done on the cross and the, and, the, and the victorious position that we have in Christ, it's not that big of a deal. But scripture is quick to warn us to be sober. To watch out. To not just blindly get tripped up. Uh, in, in Deeper Project, we're in the Gospel of John right now. We just walked through this last week, last Tuesday night. We looked at Peter, right? Peter's the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on, right? <laughs> anyway, we talked about that. We won't go semantics. But we're looking at Peter, right? He's like his right-hand guy. Like this is one of like the leaders of the disciples. And Jesus like, dude, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows? Peter's very quick. He's like, no, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, that's not going to happen. I'll cut off a guy's ear and prove it. Jesus' Jesus's response was, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as weak, but I've prayed for you, right? <laughs> that, <you're>, that, <laughs> that your faith may remain strong. And that Anyway, I'm butchering this, but we look at Peter and we look at Satan. He's directly behind Peter's denial of Jesus. He had to have permission for it. It wasn't just something that he could make happen, but it was allowed to happen. And it was instigated by the devil, by the enemy. This is the guy that has walked with Jesus for three and a half years. And in his greatest moment of need, when everybody else had left him, this is the dude that had just cut off a guy's ear to prove his loyalty to Jesus, is standing outside, warming himself by a fire, and quickly denies the Lord three times. Because his heart was incited by the devil. This was the guy that if anybody should have been able to just like rebuke the devil and punch him in the face and be like, no big deal, yeah, I'm one of Jesus' boys. Is this guy that has walked with him for three years. Three and a half years of ministry, right? And he quickly denies Jesus. I'm not saying this that, you know, I, I just want you to understand that there is a real adversary of the believer. There is a real enemy to our souls. 
And he does not want to see you succeed. And I think it would be dangerous for us to treat him as no big deal. I want to be very quick here. Did you get that image I sent to you? I want to throw this image up on the board. Boom. This is new for me. How many of you guys have seen this picture? It's on the internet. Sometimes it's like, it's Jesus and Satan in an arm wrestling match. And sometimes there's like a picture of Jesus and a picture of Satan. It's like, which one of my children will like this post? And which one will keep on scrolling and not share it? And it's this silly thing on the internet. If show of hands, how many of you guys have seen something like this out there? I know a lot of you. I follow you on social media. I've seen some of you share this exact image. So don't try to hide. <laughs> Oh, I want to, I want to, I just want to look at this. Man, Satan's kind of ripped. Like, he's got, like, muscles. He's been hitting the gym, right? And he's got these, like, little horns, and he look, man, ugh, not good. And Jesus is white? That's weird. I think that might be Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm not sure. Maybe that's what this is. This is Satan versus Obi-Wan Kenobi, and that's why it's Darth Maul. <laughs> I'm glad we're laughing at this because I want you to know how ridiculous this picture is. It, is. it is ridiculous, not just because of the art, not just because of what's taking place, but you need to understand God and Satan are not equals in any sense or in any capacity. He would like, to, he would like people to think that that's the case. And uh, though people would like to think this, he is not the opposite of God. You see, God is all-powerful, all-knowing. He's omnipresent. Satan is none of these things. You need to understand this. He does not have unlimited power. He cannot be everywhere at once. He doesn't know everything. He can't create things. He doesn't speak forth things into existence like God does. He is a created, limited being, and he depends upon God for his existence. And any power that the devil holds has been granted to him temporarily through God. And there's a whole can of worms that we open up there and we could talk about this. I'd love to take you to coffee and we could flesh this out. Otherwise, this would be a 12-part series. <laughs> and we'd get like three points in before I had another sermon to interject in there. But I want you to know, oh, you took the picture down. This is dumb. This picture is not representative. Come on. I'm pointing to the screen. <laughs> now it's going to come up after I move past my point. It's going to derail us. <laughs> anyway, guys, you understand my point here, right? The devil and Jesus. I got to get whatever protein powder the devil's using, though. Just saying. Very quickly here, while we have this imagery up here, this is the common perception that many people have when we talk about the devil. You know, he's got little horns, he's this red guy, and he's just evil. He's probably got a tail and like a pitchfork or something. That is not uh, any kind of the imagery that we bring forth from Scripture. We could talk about him being a fallen angel, one that wanted to set himself above God and desired his position and was cast down. We understand that the enemy of our souls is a created being. He doesn't look like this. In fact, it says he looks like an angel of light because he deceives people and he decepts people. Uh, decepts people? Whatever. You guys were going to let that one slide, but I went back to it and... It's all good. Yesterday I did a wedding, and instead of saying, with these rings I do wed, or with thee wed, I said, with these, with these wings I thee red. <laughs> I'm never going to let it down. I promise I know some English, guys. Uh, just a couple other misconceptions about the devil while we're here. Uh, he's not the king, of air, uh, the king of hell, and we're actually going to talk a little bit about this next week. I think it's important for us to understand, but a lot of our kind of media, our songs and our, and, you know, our, our movies and stuff paint this picture of like Satan down in hell as the king of all the demons, and, which that's not uh, too far fetched, but um, is kind of the ruler of hell. It actually says he's the ruler of this world. 
He's actually the God of this age. He actually rules over the hearts and minds of men on this planetary, planetary, what am I talking about? In this realm, guys, not just in hell. Hell is a place that's created for the devil and his angels where he'll ultimately face justice and destruction. That's what we see the promise of scripture. It's not going to be a party there and he's not in charge there. He's under the hand of the judgment and the wrath of God. Um, and anyway, uh, Jesus would smoke Satan in an arm wrestle, just so you know. And he's also not his brother, if you had that idea at some point. Anyway, <laughs> because I promised to make this one sermon, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. So we saw a couple things here, and I wanted to talk about... First of it, in 1 Peter 5 eight, we're to stay alert, we're to watch out, we're to actually take this threat seriously, and that he is a great enemy. He's not somebody to undermine, but by no means is he equal to Jesus, or is there even a comparison of his power compared to that of the Lord's. Any power, any authority that he has is on borrowed time, and he still has to ask permission from the Lord for it, right? And when he was... He had, to, he had to ask permission to sift Peter as wheat. If we read throughout the book of Job, he actually has to appear before God in order to do anything against a believer. We, we talk about that. It's kind of crazy. A lot of theological things that that opens up. I'd love to talk to you about it. But we know that he's not God's equal. He's not God's opposite. He's a created being that is headed for destruction, and he's already been defeated by what Jesus has done on the cross. He knows his time is short. He knows that things are, he, he knows that he cannot win. He is in one of the, it's one of these things, why doesn't he just give up? Why doesn't he just tap? Because he so, his heart has been so incited to hate God that he wants to do anything that he can to hurt God. And the way that he does that is by hurt his most prized possession and keeping us from him. Very quickly, basic, just kind of overview there. But we go on. We see that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's vicious. He wants to destroy you. Um, he wants to see you suffer, <laughs> is what we take from 1 Peter 5.8. And it comes to this place in verse 9. It says, to stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. And so the second thing I'd like to highlight is that we're to stand firm. We're to stand firm against his tactics. We're to stand firm against this devourer of our soul. And Ephesians 6 gives us uh, some pretty good insight here. I'd encourage you guys, read the entirety of the chapter. Look into what the armor of God actually is. Um, but I want to read uh, verses 10 through 13 really quick. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not strong in Nate Ward, not strong in Shelby Perez, not because you're like A-plus Christian that's got like 20 Christian-plus points. It's being strong in the Lord and the power of his might and that we are to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Well, this just got weird, right? <laughs> Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. There's a lot here. I mean, this was like so tempting for me to break down into like a six-part series on the armor of God and how to stand against the wiles of the devil. And maybe we'll do that after I get through this one and it'll be really good, I promise. I get excited about the word of God. But what we look at here is very clear that Paul is talking about a spiritual battle that takes place in an unseen realm. And you didn't think that I was weird. <laughs> Friends, I believe that there is a realm that is more real than what we see here physically and that we can touch. I want you to know, I believe that we are called to engage in a spiritual battle for souls. That there is demonic and angelic activity that takes place. That there is a devil that is fighting against the people of God. And that we are to combat against it. That we are to be engaged, and that's why I want to make a big deal about the fact that so many people don't believe in the devil. More people believe in demons than they do the devil, but whatever, that's weird to me. But so many people don't believe in demons. So many people don't believe in the devil 
Because they've not seen them. They've not encountered them. And we've kind of tried to demystify them and, and, and throw them all off with like some kind of psychological approach. But the reality is, I believe there's a spiritual war that is taking place for souls that we're called to engage in. And the church is doing a poor job engaging that front because we don't even believe it exists. But Jesus certainly talked about it. Paul, the scriptures make it abundantly clear that there is a battle going on. He would go on in 2 Corinthians Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds. We see that we have this, we, we have to understand that the war that we're to engage with doesn't just take place on a physical front. How many of you guys have ever just tried to stop sinning? It's hard. It doesn't really work that well. It's because it's not just a physical battle. There's a spiritual aspect to getting free from the bonds of sin and the grip of the enemy. And it only comes way through the Holy Spirit. And I say all this, uh, uh, looking back in 1 Peter, that we're, com- we're commissioned to stand firm against God, the, uh, f- to stand firm against the wiles of the devil. Don't stand firm against God. It won't work. Um, <laughs> But it goes on in verse 9 that we're to remember our family of believers all over the world that they're going through the same kind of suffering that you are. If you feel like the devil has just been hitting you up with a two-by-four lately, feel like he's been attacking your family, your finances, that he's been getting his hands just in places and, 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 and really causing a mess, I don't want you to feel like you've done something just absurdly wrong and that there's just some kind of spotlight of punishment on you. It says here that the family of believers all over the world are suffering from the influence of our enemy, of the devil, that he is at work. And I want you to take some kind of comfort in knowing that you're not alone in that. And that one day that is quickly approaching, he is going to receive his judgment and it will be just. But right now, we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken place. That's why we have sickness. That's why we have death. That's why there's disease. That's why there's brokenness. It's because there is real evil in this world. And it is going to come to judgment. I wanted to end with some practical advice this morning. And I find that in James chapter 4. In verse 7, it says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Most of the time, I've heard this verse quoted, and even when I've quoted it, um, you know, we talk about resisting the devil and he will flee. But there's a whole other sentence right before that talking about submitting to God. I feel like we kind of jump the gun on this one a lot. We try to resist the devil, and we try to do it in our own strength. We try to do it in our own might, and it connects back to what we just read in Ephesians chapter 6, right? And we try to just make it happen. How many of you guys have just white-knuckled trying to not sin? (laughs) It's not worked very well for me. But we see before we're even to resist the devil, we're to submit to God. Friends, you will have an impossible time trying to resist the devil without first submitting to the Lord. But submission isn't something that's pretty. We don't like to talk about submission, especially in our culture. It's all about me and my way and doing things the way that I think they should be done. Right? I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. That's the mentality that we have. Even if it's the right way to do it, I, I don't like being told what to do. Can I, be, I have a transparent moment here? My wife uh, is wiser than me a lot of the times, most of the time, all the time probably. <laughs> and I can be very stubborn in just kind of going head on and doing something. And she can have 100% the right attitude and the right, you know, the right insight and tell me what I'm about to do is wrong. And there's just something about me and my pride and stubbornness that I'm going to continue to do it my way until it doesn't happen and it doesn't work. And she is so gracious in not telling I told you so. 
But if I would have just listened, things would have worked out. I can think of one very great example that I'm not going to share with everybody (laughs) in front of us right now. So (laughs) I'm being a little vague. (laughs) But the reality is we know that about the Lord too, right? We know that his plan for us is good. We know that his purposes are for us to prosper, right? We know that he wants to see us succeed. And even though he's got the perfect plan for our lives, most of the time, because we're stubborn and we think we know better than God who created the heavens and the earth and like did everything, um, we don't want to submit to his will for us. We don't want to do what he actually wants us to do because we think we've got this thing figured out. We need to, mo- we need to allow Jesus to be both our Savior and our Lord. It's easy for us to say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. Thank you for paying the price for my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and making me right with you and giving me this clean slate. Thank you, man. That was such a nice thing for you to do. And then continue to try to live our lives our own way. That is something that, you know, modern Christianity has completely completely missed the mark on, right? We equate salvation to say this prayer Get right with God. Here's your get out of hell free card and just go on with living your life the way that you want to live it. The reality is Jesus said, no, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. This isn't about what you want anymore. It's about what I want for you. But trust me, what I want for you is better than what you think you want for yourself. If we're ever going to see the power of the enemy crushed in our lives, if we're going to effectively combat the wiles of the devil, if we're going to stand firm against his tactics and his plans, it requires us first to submit to God's plan for your life. Oh man, and we could I could do a whole message on the Lord's will for your life. Oh, this would be good. Why didn't I do that? But then he goes on and he tells us to resist the devil, and that he would flee from you. I think the best example that we have of resisting the devil is found in Luke chapter 4, right, where Jesus is led off into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Whoa, mind drop. Let's have coffee. Seriously, I want to talk about that. <laughs> Not going to open that can of worms right now. But Jesus is led into the wilderness, right, and the devil comes to tempt him. And he twists and he perverts scripture. And the number one thing that Jesus does to resist the devil, he isn't like just call him out, oh, you stupid devil, I already beat you. I'm going to, he doesn't start talking trash, right? (laughs) He doesn't get in an arm wrestling match with the devil. (laughs) Nobody starts playing a fiddle. (laughs) What does he do? He stands on the word of God. And he combats the tactics and the plans of the enemy with this word, with scripture. And this is why so many of us, as the people of God, I believe are under constant attack and meddling and the plans and the wiles of the devil are actually taking foothold in our life is because we do not know this book. We do not spend time in this word and we're content with whatever we see on social media and and kind of the posts that might get sent to your phone once a day. But I guarantee you, the more time that you spend in his word and you make yourself familiar with it and you know the promises that are made to the family of God here in these pages, the less that the enemy is going to be able to come and attack you with. That's why I love Deeper Project. I know it's such a simple revolutionary idea that, you know, we'd have a small group We'd have a Bible study that studies the Bible, but it's good. (laughs) And I've grown more in my faith over the last five years of just reading the Bible together with other believers than I probably did the entire time that I was in ministry school. (laughs) No, that's not true. That was bad. Read the Bible, though. That's what I'm saying. It's good. (laughs) We read the Bible together in Bible college. It was good. Pastor Jamie, if you listen to this, thank you for the school. That was not, it's a bad example. I repent. Thank you, Jesus. But verse 7 continues on into verse 8. 
It's one of my favorite passages of scripture here. James, that if we're to draw near to God, he would draw near to us. And my simple kind of three-point back-to-back wham-wham, if you really want that, is to submit to God, to resist the devil, and then run to Jesus. Because as we submit to him, as we make him both Lord and Savior of our life, and we ask, what do you want for us? And as we spend time in this book, as we know the scriptures, as we have promises to rely back on to, we can, we can expose the lies of the enemy. We can recognize, devil, you're a liar. <laughs> right? This is what God actually says about me, and this is what God actually says about this. And as we do that, we take steps closer to Jesus and his promises as we draw near to him, he would draw near to us. As we intentionally, consciously say yes to Jesus, he says, oh, come here, son. <laughs> right? And he meets us. And we see the power and the working of the devil thwarted in our life. I don't know who you think you are this morning. But you're not immune to the workings and the attacks of the enemy. You can be super saints with all the Christian points. It's not going to make a difference. Jesus himself was tempted. You're going to face temptation. Right? <laughs> but Jesus faced temptation and he conquered it. <laughs> right? He lived victoriously over it. And I believe he did so by standing on the promise and the word of God. So as we're talking about the devil, as we're talking about sin, as we're going to talk about the devil's eventual demise next week. I'm really excited about this because it leads perfectly into Easter. Uh, and I'm stoked for just how things worked out. It's not how I initially mapped it out, but it's going to work. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about what Jesus had to say about hell next week which woo, everybody's like, I don't know if I want to be here. You do, because Jesus says some pretty crazy things. We want to look at it from Scripture, not just from our common perceptions or church tradition. And we want to know what Jesus has to say about these things, because he is our deliverer. He is our Savior, and he saved us from so much. He saved us from sin. He saved us from the power of the devil. And of the powers that be that we read about here in spiritual principalities, he delivers us from these. Not only does he deliver us, but he also sets us on the offensive to where we're pulling down strongholds. Where we're actually seeing these principalities, where we're seeing, where we're seeing things that are happening in the spiritual realm uh, fall at the onslaught of the word of God. And we see, we see uh, the gospel go forth. I'm really excited to talk about these things, friends, and I'm thankful that you are here approaching these things with me from the lens of Scripture, wanting to see what God actually says about these things. But I just remind you, and I think the best way to conclude this morning with this message is this, is that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Right, John 10.10. 10. But Jesus says that he came that you may have life and life more abundantly. And if there's one prayer that I have this morning is, yes, let's recognize that we have a real enemy. Yes, let's recognize that there is a spiritual battle that we're engaged in. But what Jesus has to offer and who he is, is of so much more significance. Is of, I can't reiterate it enough that he is good. And that life with him is so much better. I like to think about it this way. I think that... Uh, I, th I like to think that the goodness of God preaches way better than the nastiness of hell. And it's not because I'm not afraid to talk about hell or talk about the devil or talk about sin. Those things are terrible. But when I compare it to how good God actually is, how great he actually is, and his loving kindness and his mercy that's extended to us, there's not a comparison. Doesn't mean we don't ever talk about it. Doesn't mean that we never really have good theology based from the word on it. But the reality of it is, is Jesus is good. And that he wants you to live. And the life that he wants you to live is so much better 
than the enemy's plan for your life. Because it's a life full of abundance. It's not without hardship. It's not without suffering. But it's full. And it's full of his joy. That's a promise to us. And so I want to invite you, friends, if you have not made a decision to follow Jesus, I don't always do this just in my sermons like this, but if you have not made a decision to make Jesus both your Savior and Lord, I want you to hunt me down after service. Like seriously, maybe not with a gun or something like that, but find me. And I, w- I want to be able to talk with you. I want to be able to share with you why Jesus is so good. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.